Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Deborah Murkey on her gripping story of faith, family, and seemingly impossible forgiveness. Then when you went to the, the, the jail that, that uh, first night to see her, uh, you were there to uh, speak forgiveness, and I said, absolutely not. <laughs> but I was there to show grace, because I felt like that's what God was telling me to do. And the, the grace I was showing her was just really just showing up. I had no clue what to expect. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness was not even on the plate. Deborah Murkey, next. With an incredibly diverse background of foster parent, jail guard, and chaplain, crisis pregnancy center director, and more, Deborah Murkey today will recount how God led her through a very painful part of her life in a most redemptive way. Deborah tells this story in her book, Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace. Here's Kimberly Birchall. Billy Graham's daughter, Ruth Graham, said, once you start reading this book, you won't be able to put it down. Deborah, when you set out to write the story of the true life events from your life, did you know it was going to be a page turner? Was that what you set out to do? No, I did not. In fact, it it took me seven years of the Lord just hounding me to even get up the courage or or to even think I could write this story. So I, I just wasn't thinking of really writing a book about it. And then, like I said, that pressure and some people had told me, you, you need to share this story. So all I could do was just sit down and just start writing just as it happened. And I just kept going. And it was difficult. It was really challenging. I appreciated what you said at the beginning of the book that you did your research, you know, you looked back at court documents and different things like that to make sure that you were actually telling it as you remembered it. One of the first things we learn about you is that you you and your husband were foster parents over a 16-year period. What made you become foster parents, and how many children did you foster? Well, we had moved from uh, Texas here to Casper and uh, expecting um, our third child. She was two weeks away from being born. And right after she was born, we just saw an advertisement in our community that there was such a need here for families that could take in children that, you know, just really a need and children that were either neglected or abused. And, and, and it just touched my husband's and my heart. And we said, well, you know, we don't have a lot, you know, a lot of money or, or anything like that, but we have a lot of love and we could certainly take in a child, you know, that, that needs help. So um, my husband and I agreed. And a few days later I went down and we filled out the paperwork, went through the training and all that. And um, it wasn't long before we received our first child, of course. So over those many, many years, we fostered over 140 children over about a 17 to 18 year period. Yeah. The first line in your book is days that will change your life forever seldom announce themselves. And I have to tell you, I have friends that would say, ain't that the truth? So as a Christian, how have you learned to handle those days? And how do you feel God wants us to handle those days? Well, you know, through this whole story, which was a number of years back, and it was just at a time when we started to be foster parents, we weren't even Christians then. So it took about two years into that before we really came to know the Lord. So at that point, I think everything in my life was so much dependent on me. You know, everything that happened, I had to fix it, I, I, you know, and um, make it work. And my mother raised my sisters and me to be strong, independent women. And that's great until you're married and that independence isn't always the best thing. But I just felt always that pressure. I had to fix it. But after I became a Christian, then I just realized all of the things I could not fix that I had to depend on the Lord. 
So uh, those things that hit us in life, uh, we, we can't be prepared for them on our own. We can only be, I think, prepared for them of saying, Lord, this day is yours and what you're going to present, you know, to me in it, I, I have to trust you with it and you need to guide me in it. At the heart of the book is the fact that the Department of Family Services neglected to protect a child, even though you tried several times to let them know that something was wrong. However, I don't think you used this book to paint DSF as the villain and you as the hero. What was your goal with the book? And that's such a great question. Um, I've had people asking me, too, you know, how I still felt about DFS. And the thing was, we had a great relationship for all those years we were foster parents. And I love them, love the people that work there. And so in writing the book, my intent was not to really paint anybody out to be a villain, but just to share truth. And the truth is about DFS is that, uh, you know, they did the best that they could do in in all the situations that are thrown at them. And so I, I didn't want to paint them out. They weren't the ones that committed the crime. They just let a child fall between the cracks. And for that, they were definitely ostracized and they were criticized. But I also had to uh, really look to the Lord for that and realize, you know, we are humans. We fail. We fall. We make mistakes. And it's just a good thing the Lord doesn't hold all those things against us. It was just something I couldn't paint them out to be the villain because uh, they really weren't the villain. They, they were just part of the whole story and the scenario of the failure. What advice or counsel would you give to someone considering becoming foster parents or people who already are? Um, I've asked that often, and especially since the book. I think one of the first things, and I've given a couple of different suggestions, but the first thing is, if you have children of your own, don't take in children older than your own children. We were very, very naive. And at times we had children older than our own, and it it wasn't good. They were either abusive or those children coming into your home become more of an influence to your younger children than your children being an influence to them. So that would be probably my number one on the list is to pay attention to that. I think the other thing is, which is just as vitally important is first do a real serious family and heart check and individual check where you are at yourself. You know, don't take children in thinking that that's going to fix a problem in your own family. You know, that, um, that maybe there's unrest in your family that you think by bringing in children that are, are needy and you can focus on them, that it's going to balance out those problems in your own family. You, you've got to be a really strong, stable family, whether it's just you're an individual fostering, whether you're a couple or a couple with some children in your family, you need to be a strong individual yourself uh, so that you can offer that help and that strength to a child, but not let that child uh, destroy either your relationship or your own family. For those that maybe are fostering now and are experiencing a a difficult situation with DFS or they're not feeling that things are going as they should, what would you recommend to them? My philosophy was that is that when I've spoken to caseworkers or supervisors through the years, I've always tried to be as polite and as respectful and as kind to them. They have a very horrendous job. And uh, sometimes they will come across on the defensive because they have people that aren't very nice to them. Foster parents, um, obviously some of the clients that they have to deal with, maybe the courts, you know, they're dealing with a lot of things that are are really kind of tough. So I have won caseworkers over basically by, by really esteeming them, 
by coming alongside them and just uh, telling them how much I appreciate them, that I recognize their hard work. And it's really amazing when you show that kind of grace and you just show that support with them. But more often than not, you'll get that support back, you know, especially even if they don't show it to somebody else, they'll, they'll show it to you. That's good advice. As you were fostering children, you were also serving as the executive director of the local pregnancy center. You tell of the time that you said, Lord, I don't get it. What is my job? Tell us about the vision God gave you when you ask him that question. Well, you know, I was hired. I had been a Christian just a year. So there were still things I had to learn and grow in and then the word and there's so much I didn't know. And then this, uh, because there was an abortion in my, my own personal history, I, you know, felt almost sort of like I was this new Christian in, in, in my church that would become almost a poster child instead of just a, instead of a director. And so everything happened so fast. I took a training, they interviewed people, they hired me. And I think it was so overwhelming. And it was plus at a time in our, our country where it was such warfare, you know, as far as these centers opening up across the country. And I was naive enough to believe that I could go out to all the local churches and they were going to be in such great support. And I found that not true. And so I was just overwhelmed and just really finally said, Lord, I, I think, I believe you put me in this position, but what for, you know, what's, what's my real direction here? What is my purpose? What is it you want me to do? Share with our listeners, Deborah, the manhole vision. Oh, the manhole. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. You know, I don't share that with a whole lot of people just because sometimes I know it sounds strange. But when I really prayed and asked the Lord, uh, you know, about that, you know, the Lord made it very simple. He just gave me this sort of vision in my head and he, it was like a city street and there was this big manhole. And if you look down in it, it was basically the manhole to the sewer system of the city. And, you know, he just shared with me that the city is like the world up there. And yet there's people that are going to be, you know, going back and forth in this world through this sewer system. And my job was to just stand there at that manhole in the sewer system where there was this sort of wrought iron type of steps going up the cement. I mean, I could visualize the whole thing. And he said, my job is that to whoever passes by me is to show them where the light is. And the light was up those steps. And that was where the Lord was going to meet them. He also warned me that there would be people that didn't want that, would not climb those steps. And he said there would be people that didn't feel that they could. And then my job would be to do whatever I could, hoist them up on my shoulder, you know, push them up through the manhole, but get them into the light. And that was my job. So, um, and that I feel like is my job in this life. You know, that's, that was a life direction. When I read that in the book, I was like, wow, Lord, you know, you can you can sense the sewer and the smell and the, yeah. you know, all that's going on. And God is saying, I'm telling you to grab them out of the sewer right, and get them up to the light. It was just one of those things that just caught my attention. So it just gripped me. It was like, wow, that is a, a really great way to describe that and to have the Lord bring that to you and make that personal to you that this is your job, Deborah. This is what I want you to do. Because you felt like you were fighting a fight that you weren't winning. And I was confused because I thought that even when he gave me that vision, I thought, well, Lord, can I just kind of sit on the street and dangle my feet in the manhole and watch for people, you know, in a nice, safe place, nice, clean place. But he was like, no, he says, I'm assigning you to the sewer. This is your job and this is your manhole. And this is what this is what I'm calling you to do. Yeah. 
And you did it faithfully. Uh, When given the opportunity, what do you tell other Christians who find themselves uncomfortable, hurting, suffering, and feeling that they must be off track or just wanting to quit because it's too hard? Oh, I share stories like Elijah. (laughs) I'll bring up (laughs) stories to them and say, hey, you are among great people because there were lots of biblical characters and other great people that God used in this life that got weary, that we're going to throw up their hands, that we're going to give up, and that that's such a great place to be. Because I know that when I have gotten to that place, and I've been there a number of times, I just have to stop. And uh, I've really learned to tap into the Holy Spirit. And that's only been probably more recent years to really trust him and just say, what am I to do? And sometimes the Holy Spirit seems to tell me, this is a time you're supposed to just rest and listen. It's not a time you're supposed to be doing anything. So if you feel like you're not moving forward, there's a reason. And maybe it's because you don't have that clear direction yet and you need to sit and wait and listen. I'm speaking with Deborah Murky, the author of Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace, which by the title sounds like it might be a novel, but in fact, it is a true story. Deborah, share how you learned that Hannah, a child you loved and fostered for 11 months, had been murdered by her mother. So we had this child, which was part of a family of five, and the, um, we had the children for almost a year, and little Hannah was, I realized soon and early on that she was a targeted child of this mother, that uh, her mother took most of her frustration out on her. The mother was not married, had a number of boyfriends through the house, and they seemed to be abusive to this little girl as well. She was only four. So when it was time after about a year and the courts ordered them home, before even finishing the program with the mom, I was scared to death for her. And the, this child was as well. And she was just turning five years old. And my fear was that she was going to be harmed. And so what I would do is I try to build a relationship with some of these single moms if they'd let me. And I would go to the house when the kids went home and bring food or bring a gift if it's a birthday, trying to keep an eye on all of them and, and support her. And after a while, I was not seeing Hannah. So I started calling social services. And over a number of months, they would say, well, we have it. We have it covered. We, we know she's okay. We're keeping an eye on things. And finally, a year later, I received a call that they found Hannah's body in, in the garage of the home of the mother. Mm-hmm. And that was devastating to our family. Um, and I think that one of the hardest things about all of it was the, uh, just that lack of control. I had absolutely no control or authority to prevent that from happening. I couldn't force social services to keep her with us and not send her home. I couldn't convince the mother that we would keep, you know, Hannah until she could get on her feet. Her mother said no. And and there was absolutely nothing I could do. And I had no authority to move forward to protect her. And that was one of the really horrible things about it. And so um, this child lost her life and fell between the cracks, which was very sad. Mm -hmm. Did you feel the Lord's presence with you when you learned this news what did you feel you know just as between you and your savior when this all happened was there why questions was there anger um, towards god or or where were you at at that moment well i think that when when we i first got the news i could practically not stand because the caseworker called me over the phone and then i cried out to my family to come and we all hugged each other and i told them the news and i remembered just shortly after that, minutes after that, whatever, thinking, 
it was one of those things that you, you kind of argue with the Lord and go, I knew something was going to happen. I knew something. Why didn't you stop this? You know, why didn't you give me what I needed? You know, then the guilt comes in. Did I not do something? Was there something I could have done? Could I have prevented this? And so this arguing with God, you know, of just, why would you allow this, this innocent child, you know, this to happen when there was always other opportunities given for us to keep her, to take guardianship over her, you know, to protect her. And so the argument came, you know, I was the big, why, why would you allow this to happen, Lord? And the why went on a long time before I really wanted an answer from him. You know, we just want to argue with him and, and vent. We, I wasn't in a place for quite a while that I really wanted to hear from him. And when you were in that place, what do you feel he revealed to you? Well, to, to, to be honest, when I was in the beginning of that place was the next morning when I received a phone call from the mother of the child that she'd murdered from jail. And I am a local lay, lay, uh, lay uh, chaplain to our jail. So I had opportunity to go there and she knew that. And so she was calling and I heard that recording on the phone coming in, you know, there's an inmate calling you, will you accept the call? And it's just, I just started, I was just on fire. So angry. I thought, I cannot believe she's calling me. And as I was about to hang up the phone, cause I thought I'm not taking this call. Um, very clearly. I, I sense the Holy spirit just say, if she called Jesus, would he pick up the phone right now? Would he take mm. her call? Mm. And I was, I think that was honestly the first time I mm. listened, I heard him. Mm. And it wasn't anything about her crime, what she did, the child, whatever. It was just the, the fact of no matter what it was that she did, just like no matter what it is that we do, if we called out to Jesus, would he take our call? And I knew the answer to that. And yes, he would. And the reminder was that I, am I the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus or am I not? You know, am I going to represent him or am I not? And that was really the first time I think I heard from him and I answered that call. It seemed in the book that your husband and your, and your children also, I think, were a bit surprised that you would actually go see her. Probably surprised that you took the call too, but that you would actually go when she asked for you to come. Yes. They were angry. My husband just stared at me when I, I asked him. I asked him privately aside of my children because my children were devastated. They, our family loved this little girl. And, and so I, we kind of agreed that I wouldn't, we wouldn't let them know where I was going. But because at night I would sometimes have to go to the jail, they picked up on that. And when they realized where I was going, one daughter just went to her room and went and talked to me. And another one just rolled their eyes. And the other one just stood up and just stared at me like, are you kidding me? Why would you do that? You know, she doesn't deserve that. Why would you go? Mm -hmm. And so it was really hard because it's really, I always say that's one of those places where you're caught between a rock and a hard place and the hard places of the world and the rock is Jesus Christ, you know? And yeah. And so I was caught between a rock and a hard place. Yes. Because you said yes, Deborah, and took the call, the Lord took you on a journey toward seemingly impossible forgiveness how were you able to forgive Hannah's mother? Well, you know, when the book was being edited, it was being discussed with me of that and asking me, well, then when you went to the, the, the jail that, that uh, first night to see her, uh, you were there to uh, speak forgiveness. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> but I was there to show grace because I felt like that's what God was telling me to do. Mm -hmm. And the, the grace I was showing her was just really just showing up. I had no clue what to expect. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness was not even on the plate. 
I did, you know, there was just no way. And so forgiveness really was over time. I ended up visiting her in prison, you know, over a number of years. But I believe that the beginning part, maybe it, that God was going to start t- tendering my heart toward forgiveness was when I went to visit her the next time in the jail. And she asked me, she said, there's no forgiveness for what I've done, is there? And when I asked her forgiveness from who, and she said, God, I had to tell her the truth. <laughs> and that really was about killing me because I didn't want to tell her the truth. I didn't want to tell her that, no, through Jesus Christ. And if you're sincerely sorry, you know, that through Jesus Christ, yes, even this can be forgiven. And so I, I asked her if she had ever received Christ and she said, no. So I shared with her about him. And then I asked her if she'd like to receive Christ. And so I can't say that forgiveness was starting probably in my mind or in my heart, but I believe God was beginning to turn my will you know, and, uh, to, mm-hmm. you know, and then the rest was going to follow. Mm-hmm. What was your response when Hannah's mother asked you to be the guardian of the child she was pregnant with when she entered prison? Initially, I was really shocked because we had asked her twice. We knew that there was conflict with little Hannah and that she was a targeted child. I, before the kids went home, I asked her mother, I said, how do you feel if we took temporary guardianship over Hannah? you know, until you can get on your feet with the other kids. And she was twice I asked her and she said no. And because a lot of times, I mean, I sense that they were more her property, you know, mm-hmm. she that she didn't want anybody else having hands on them. And so because of that, and that she wouldn't let me do that with Hannah, I was really surprised that she would even consider me to want to adopt the baby that she was about to give birth to. Mm. But in fact, you didn't want guardianship of that child. You wanted adoption. And why was that? Because, well, what I explained to her was, I just said, guardianship means we're, in a sense, taking care of this child for you. So you're, you're going to end up either with a death penalty or with a life sentence. And so I, it's not fair to this child to raise this child for a mother who's going to spend life in prison. So if we are going to take this baby, then this baby has to be ours. We need to adopt this baby and let this baby have their own life, grow up, you know, with their own set of parents, not with this hanging over their head, that there is this birth mother in prison, you know, and that we're just having guardianship. Mm. And so that was, that was kind of the bottom line. That's where I said, she just needed to decide what she wanted to do. How long did it take her to decide? And the, the oh. whole journey seemed to have been kind of a hard one in itself. It was, it was very hard. I went came back, of course, talked to my husband since some time, and I was physically visiting her in prison, oh, maybe twice a year, but she would be brought back here for hearings, you know, a couple of times. And then I would visit w- with her locally at the jail. I believe it was a time when she came back to the jail, perhaps that I, uh, I said that we would, we would work toward that goal. So I would say maybe a month after that, mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot of time because this baby was going to be born within a few months. Okay. So we mm-hmm. had to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And then DSF fought you on that as well, though, right? Yeah, right. Yes. Which that surprised me because we had been some of their top foster parents for all of those years and um, were very successful foster parents with a lot of the children. But the problem was, is that, of course, DFS was under the gun because of what happened that they let this child fall between the cracks. And so they kind of shut down and they were not communicating. But when they found out this baby was going to be born and that I was going for my husband are going for adoption, I believe that their attorneys said that they needed to fight that because I was visiting now the birth mother. Mm -hmm. And I think it was more 
just my thought. The DFS needed to save face. They needed to try to take back some control in this family. They had the other children back under foster care. And I think they needed to take this baby that was going to be born. I don't believe the caseworkers afterwards, the caseworkers were very much in support of us, you know, because I know we were pretty close. We cared a lot about each other, but I believe the legal part of their, of DFS was saying, you need to do this. You know, you need to fight her on this. And so when we went to court, um, there was, uh, of course, absolutely no reason why we couldn't adopt. And they had really no, no reason. They just said, well, we're afraid that she's going to bring this baby to the prison and lots of babies go to prison to visit mothers. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. not going to put the baby in harm's way, but that's not what our plan was anyway. Mm-hmm. And you did, in fact, then adopt that child, and yes. she's now a grown woman. Is that right? Yes. yes. She's a grown woman. She is married, happily married, to a wonderful young man and has two children. And so at what point did she learn who her mother was? So when she was about 13, 14 years old, and she went to the mall with a friend of hers, and they went to a movie. And as they were coming out and all waiting, which a lot of the teenagers, it was spring break, she ended up, which I knew this would happen at some point, ran into another group of kids and they all got talking. And, and within this group of kids at the mall were some of the birth siblings oh, of hers wow. that had also grown up in the community. Mm-hmm. And they started kind of matching notes a little bit. I could tell something was going on when I picked her up. And plus, I saw some of the, the kids in the group when I picked them up and I thought, oh, you know, but I always told my daughter, I said, ever since she was little, whenever you want to know the truth. I will always tell you the truth, but you, I, I'm going to wait till you ask. I'm not going to, wasn't going to offer anything. She had to be ready to ask. And that's when she was ready to ask. When she was 13. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. There is so much more to the book and so much more to your story. I can't believe all the things that you did from being a, a not just uh fostering and and directing a pregnancy center, but you were a prison chaplain and a prison guard. It was a prison, correct? That you were a, a guard? It, it was, was a, a jail, jail in, in Phoenix. Uh-huh. Okay. The, the local jail system there. Yeah. Just uh, many, many things. How do you see God weaving all of that into your story? Well, it's so interesting because every single thing that I've been a part of and done, I, I, I just love you know, experimenting with all these different things in life, as you can see, but I it didn't take me too long to start seeing it's this thread through everything I was a part of, you know, and that whether it's crisis pregnancy, foster parenting, uh, prison system, I mean, and I was, I worked with our rescue mission, you know, these people are all kind of intertwined. There's, there are, there's a, a lot of the same people involved. And the Lord gave me a lot, when I first came to know him, he gave me a ministry of, and he's made it very clear of forgiveness and redemption. Mm. That is my ministry. That is my call in the sewer. <laughs> and um, so my call is throughout this was, and that I've learned is that my job is to just love these people as Jesus loves them. And in that love, that's what's going to lead them to the Lord. You know? And so uh, I realized that's what he's called me to do. And whether I'm tired, whether I'm angry, whether I agree or disagree, whether it's stinky, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. what I'm called to do. And So I'm always asking for God's grace to be obedient, and that's my desire. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Deborah Murkey, foster parent and author of Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace.
Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at the same time for another edition of His People.